All right, well, we are about halfway through in our epic series on the story of God. I don't know if any of you growing up ever uh, made one of those bracelets as kids, those salvation bracelets. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But some of you church kids, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you, You do the salvation bracelet. The first bracelet is green for like creation. The next little bead on there is black for sin, and then the next bead is red for for redemption, and the last one I think is yellow or white for heaven. And there's probably a few other beads thrown in there, maybe brown for puppies, or I don't know, but there's, there's, you know, those are the basics, right? The basic beads. And I used to make these all the time as kids, because every VBS I went to, we made one of these. And, uh, so if, if, you, if you can think of that bracelet, as we go through the story of God, we've done the green one, the green little bead for creation, and now last week we started to get into the black bead. Dean talked about how Adam and Eve were made in God's image, they had a relationship with him, but they chose to disobey him. And today I'm going to continue on that theme, I'm going to stay on that black bead. And so it's going to be a little bit heavy, I've got to warn you, it's not fun talking about sin. I would rather talk about something else, maybe, to uh, make you everybody happy. But nevertheless, we have to go through the black bead in order to get to the red bead. If we don't go through the black bead, the red bead doesn't make any sense. We just stay on the green bead. But if you want to get to the red bead, and then that takes us to the yellow bead, we have to go through the black bead. So, let's do this. Let's let's just get through it, and then next week it'll be a happier topic. So last week, Dean talked about Adam and Eve. It's a familiar story. If you share the story of Adam and Eve and the fall with somebody, most people are roughly familiar with it. Even if they're not Christians, even if they didn't grow up in a Christian home, many people have heard the story. They've seen the pictures, right? The, the naked people with the little leaves and they're reaching for the apple or whatever. Most people have heard that. And so if you're sharing the story, some people will ask you questions like, well, wait a minute, was there really an Adam and Eve? Or how does evolution fit or whatever? Those do come up. And and there are answers for those questions. There are resources for those. But in my experience, most people don't struggle with those issues. Most people struggle with a a doctrine that we call the doctrine of human depravity. It just sounds kind of bad. The doctrine of depravity. And that's this belief, this idea, that because Adam and Eve sinned, they became sinful by nature. That became their natural state, their natural inclination. And they passed that sin nature down to their descendants. And therefore, everyone, every human being descended from Adam and Eve is sinful by nature. And therefore, when we reach an age of accountability before God, we are condemned. We are condemned before Him because of our sin. And in our culture, that is a hard pill to swallow. I mean, you you share the gospel, people are pretty positive about most points, but this is the one point, this is the bead where people get tripped up on. Depravity just isn't a very popular belief. It's not politically correct. It sounds very pessimistic and old-fashioned. And it's hard to understand. I mean, how, what is a sinful nature? And, And how does it get passed down? And how can God blame us for what Adam and Eve did? It doesn't seem fair. And those are some common questions that people are going to bring up when you as you're discipling a potential Christian or a new Christian, these are going to come up. And so I'm going to try to wrestle with them today. I'm not going to offer you perfect answers, but I'm going to wrestle with these today. Because like it or not, human depravity is a core doctrine of Christianity. If there's no depravity, there's no need for a Savior. There's no need for God to draw us, to intervene and to draw us to Himself. There's no need to be changed by God's Spirit. We just need to try harder to be good. That's what other religions believe. 
Muslims, Jews, New Age people, none of them believe in human depravity. They don't believe that you have a sinful nature. They believe that humans are basically good deep down. And therefore, there is no need for Jesus as Savior. These other religions may view Jesus as a good teacher, but not as a redeemer. But that's not what the Bible teaches. So turn with me in your Bible or on your smartphone to Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 18. Now, as you're turning now, let me tell a story. I, I grew up in a, in a house with a basement. There's not a lot of basements here in California, but in Indiana, there's a lot of basements. And so my house had a basement, and there was a real steep staircase leading down to the basement. And so as a little kid, my friends and I would play this game to test our bravery. So who could be the bravest? And so the way you did it is all by yourself. You went onto the landing of the stairs, and you're looking down the staircase. You close the door that connects the st- that landing to the, to the other part of the house. So you close the door, you turn out the lights. So it's dark. you got a little bit of light coming in from under the door, but you're staring down the stairway. It's completely black. And you begin to go down the stairs. And it's scary because every step it gets darker. And you're, you look back, but that light gets fainter and fainter, and you're going down. And uh, I, I had a real terror of, of vampires growing up. And so I'm just like, oh, man, like there's a vampire going to jump on me uh, any second. And this was before the whole friendly vampire thing started coming out. So I, <laughs> I, I thought they were mean, right? And um, I'm like, oh, they're going to jump on me any moment. You just keep going. And finally you get to the bottom and your heart's just thumping. And then if you stay there long enough, your eyes begin to adjust. You can begin to see some shapes, some outlines. But that didn't help me. Because every outline, every shape I thought was like Freddy Krueger or another vampire. And I was just like, my heart's beating. Uh, my, my terror is getting, getting stronger. My thoughts are growing more irrational, more wild. Until finally I charge back up the stairs as fast as I can to get away from, from all, those, all those creatures. Now I think that that is a little bit of a metaphor for our passage today. Because starting, Paul is going to argue that starting with Adam and Eve... The human race has stepped out of the light, and we have been descending that, down this staircase into the darkness, further and further down the rabbit hole, further and further away from God, into a state of increasing confusion and emotional disorder. So let's read verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and women. This is one time when you don't want it, you, women don't want it to be gen, gender neutral, but it is. Men and women who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Now, the one word I want to quickly look at here is the word wrath, because I think that can really trip us up before we even get started. I think for a lot of people, when they see the word wrath, it reminds them of this image of God that they had growing up, that God is this cranky, vengeful, angry old man up in heaven. He, He woke up on the wrong side of bed. He's always a little bit ticked off, and he's ready to just bring down judgment on anybody who looks at him wrong or does anything that he doesn't like. I want to say that that is definitely not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not an unpredictable dad with an anger problem. That's not who he is. And some of you grew up with that, but that is not our Heavenly Father. But he does hate evil. 
He gets angry over it. He does. He has wrath because of evil. But most of the time, the way that he expresses his wrath, the way that he punishes and disciplines, is by letting people experience the natural consequences of their actions. That's typically the way God disciplines or punishes us. Now, there are times in the Bible, there are times when God punishes directly. Sodom and Gomorrah, Ananias and Sapphira, but those are exceptions, Typically, God's wrath means he's allowing us to experience the negative consequences of our sinful choices. And so what Paul is saying here in this 18 through 20, he's saying that God is angry at humanity, not just for the evil that we do, he is angry about that, but he's also angry about the fact that we suppress the truth of what can be plainly known about God. Now, I think the first premise of Paul's argument here is pretty obvious. Even if you think that deep down everybody's really good, you can't deny that humanity has done a lot of evil. We have. And if there's a perfectly good God out there, he can't be cool with it. He's not happy about it. It must make him angry. If evil doesn't make God angry, then he's immoral. If, if Assyrian soldiers taking little children and impaling them on poles doesn't make God angry, then there's something wrong with God. So Paul's first premise here, I think, is very reasonable. He hates evil. He hates the wickedness that we do. But what bothers most people is the second part of Paul's statement here. That what may be known about God is plain to them. And therefore, they are without excuse for not believing and obeying Him. See, most non-Christians, both in Paul's day and in our day, would say, I don't know this God that you're talking about. So how can you say that what can be known about him is plain to me? I don't see it. That does not fit my experience. And so how does he have a right to judge me? Now, Paul is not saying that everything about God is plain. Okay, he's not saying that you look in the sky and you're like, oh yeah, there's a God who's triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's not what he's arguing. But he is saying that that the very basic understanding of God's existence is available through the natural world. When we look at the natural world, one thing we see is a very simple understanding of cause and effect. And we see very clearly that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Animals are born, and they don't, they don't just pop into existence, right? They're they are caused to exist by their parents. And their parents were caused by their parents, and their grandparents by their parents, and on and on and on. But that chain can't go forever. And even if you think that various spirits created animals, which is what ancient people believed, many of them, you still have to ask, well, where did all those spirits come from? Did they all exist forever? And most people in the ancient world said no. Even, even the spirits had a cause. And therefore, most cultures believed in a supreme God, a supreme being, who is the ultimate source of everything, the foundation of reality. In ancient Greece, in ancient India, and in China, and in the tribes of Africa and America, many philosophers came to the same conclusion. There must be an ultimate cause of the universe. And this cause must have eternal power. It, mean, it must be incredibly powerful to cause everything that exists. And it must exist eternally, since it could not have been caused itself. It's, it is the end of the line. It's the last, the first. And there's a little bug there, sorry. And not only must this cause have eternal power, it must be supernatural, which Paul uses the word here, supernatural and divine are interchangeable. 
It must in some way exist beyond nature. It must be supernatural because it caused nature to exist. So it can't itself be part of the natural realm. It must be set apart in some sense. And so that is what Paul is saying here. People want to, if they care about the truth, they can stop and reflect on nature and come at least to the conclusion that there is a supernatural cause of our world with eternal power that we owe our existence to. And Paul says later in this chapter that each person also knows God's righteous decrees because they're written on our hearts, on our conscience. We have God's moral law there. And if there's a being from whom everything came from, then our sense of right and wrong must also come from this being. This bugs. I got it. All right. (laughs) I swear that I took a shower this morning, so I do not know why that is. So, back on track. All humans, according to Paul, from this argument, all humans have the opportunity to know that there is a supreme being to whom we owe our existence and from whom the moral law has been written on our hearts, on our consciences, a moral law which each of us has violated. And now you may say, whoa, whoa. yeah, that's really deep, but most people aren't philosophers. They don't think that deeply. And I agree, and I I think Paul would agree, and I think this is what Paul would say. I think he would say, yes, sin has hampered our ability to reason and to reflect on nature, but God has preserved enough understanding and enough human tradition about himself for anyone to seek after the supreme being if they want to. Plus, the Holy Spirit is able to help people understand the truth. So the problem is not ability, it's desire. No one wholeheartedly desires God. That's what Paul says in his summary of this argument in Romans 3. He says, look, no one seeks God wholeheartedly, truly. No one hungers for righteousness. Everyone has turned away. Everyone does evil. Humanity has suppressed our knowledge of God and his requirements. And suppress, in the Greek, it means to hold down or to to hold back. Here's an example of what it means to suppress something. Imagine if... If your friend, you have good evidence that her boyfriend is cheating on her. You have good evidence. And it's, it's awkward to bring that kind of thing up directly, right? And so you're talking to her and you're like, man, how do I help her to get this? And so you, you, you start making statements like, dude, I saw, you know, I saw Alex with, with Julie there at the movies the other night. And then, I mean, I... I saw them walking down the street, and then I saw them the other day, I saw them coming out of his apartment, and, and you're, what you're trying to do is get her to connect the dots without you actually having to come out and say that her boyfriend's having an affair, but she just keeps acting innocent, like, like she has no clue what you're getting at. She keeps making excuses and saying, well, Alex and Julie have to be together because they study together, and, and all these ridiculous excuses, and so finally, in frustration, you say to her, look, do I have to spell this out for you? seriously? And she looks at you and says, no, don't say it. I've had these kind of conversations. See, spelling something out is making it explicit, bringing it into the light, making someone pay conscious attention to it. See, your, your, your friend, she's subconsciously aware of what's going on, uh, but when you spell it out for her and make it obvious and, 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 and make it impossible to ignore, then she would have to face it. And that is not what your friend wants to do with her boyfriend's behavior. She doesn't even want to consider certain possibilities, much less talk about them. And she may talk about them if she's forced, but then she'll be angry and defensive. And she may even walk away from you. 
And that is how humanity acts towards God. We suppress our awareness of him. Because to acknowledge his presence and to stop ignoring him would bring a conviction for our sinful desires and it would require a massive shift in our beliefs and in our behaviors. And so we do our best to suppress that knowledge of God and to replace him with idols that we feel more comfortable with. And therefore, Paul says, humanity is wicked because humanity has suppressed the truth about God. We are guilty not just for our sin, We are guilty for our ignorance. We're culpable for what we say we don't know. And therefore, we deserve God's wrath. That's the first part of Paul's argument. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment. And I'm going to invite a couple to the front who have personally experienced the undeniable reality of human depravity. And they're going to share a little bit of their story. And so I want to invite them to the front to come and and tell us a little bit about what's going on in their life and how God is using them in a very, very difficult circumstance. So we are um, Stephen and Nicole Anwar and Layla Constable. Um, Just background for us, I grew up with Dean and Martin at uh, Hope Chapel Gateway. They were um, very instrumental in me walking in obedience to Christ and where I am today. Um, We have been in the Middle East for six years, and three of those years we were in Syria, and the last year we experienced a lot of the war and things that were going on there. And in the past three years, we had to leave like many of the refugees, and we are in Jordan. And um, we started a knitting group, and you guys, we were here two years ago, and that was, it was pretty new. It was within its first year, and now it's in its third year. And so we continue to um, share the love of Christ um, through helping these families. We have 54 families now, and so helping these families financially and bringing dignity because they get to make something. It's not just another handout. They get to work for it, and so they're so proud of their work. Um, But we also share, you know, it's why are you doing this? Why are you here? Um, Stephen actually got asked, are you allowed in America? Like, he thought we must be felons or something. Like, why wouldn't you not be in America if you're allowed? So, um, So Stephen had to, you know, it was a great opportunity to share. No, it is the love of Christ that compels us, and so... Um, We just want to thank all of you for your partnership. Um, I just feel so grateful to all those from Hope Chapel that continue to support us. And then all of you that don't know us very well, we just, your warm faces and just your love that you pour on us, it really means so much to us that you guys walk with us all these years. So like Nicole said, we lived in Syria for three years, and one of those years was during the war. And it was, we experienced a lot of depravity, um, a lot of violence, a lot of evil. And you see the news, you, you read about statistics of a quarter of a million people in Syria being killed, and four million refugees, and seven million displaced in the country. And um, we had several of our friends ki- killed, and just we've seen evil up front, in our faces, literally in front of our house, um, shooting and killing, and um, 
and we, t we look at that and we see the violence and we see the state of the world and we're like, is it getting worse? Like, what is wrong? Like, why is it so bad? And the reality is it's always been that way. It's been that way since the fall. And I think for me, um, the next step in that is to realize that it's not them over there in the Middle East. It's us. It's all of us. All of us have a fallen nature and all of us need redemption. And I don't want to get ahead in the next few weeks, but our depraved state without coming to that realization of where we are, we can't experience the grace and the fullness of the gospel to, to the degree that it's meant to be. Um, and the other thing is that I wanted to share briefly was God has a plan of redemption for all of creation, including the Middle East. And I think our response to the suffering and the pain and the death in the Middle East should be, Lord, thank you for what you've done in me, and Lord, do it there. And that's our hearts. That's why we're in the Middle East. We want to see God's grace and redemption spread. And as people experience, and they have, they've asked me, like, why is it so bad? My Muslim friends, like, they've experienced evil that is unbelievable. But that experience opens them up for something else, for the great hope that we have in Christ. So, thank you. Thanks, guys. So let's go into our second part now. How did we reach this point of not only sinning, but suppressing the knowledge of God? And what are the consequences of that? Um, Paul is going to dive in here in verse 21 and begin to explain it a little bit more deeply. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So last week, Dean shared about how Adam and Eve were, were created morally innocent. They weren't perfect. Only God is morally perfect, but they were innocent. They were sinless. And in that state, Genesis implies that they were able to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And we don't know exactly what that would have looked like, but we do know that they had this direct relationship with God, this intimate, direct fellowship with God. And so they were able to receive wisdom from Him and power and joy and love directly. No, nothing hindered that relationship, but when they chose to disobey God, that relationship changed. God promised that on the, day that on the day that they ate the fruit, they would die, and he wasn't lying to them. When they disobeyed, they died spiritually. They became spiritually separated from God. And eventually their bodies died too, but that was just a consequence of being separated from the source of unending life and energy. And that's a big part of what Christians mean when we talk about the fall. We have been cut off from our original relationship with God that we were intended to have. And that causes all kinds of, of spiritual, emotional, and physical problems. And even worse, it has enabled Satan to gain a great deal of access into our hearts and minds, as we're going to see in a moment. So in verse 21, Paul now begins to describe this descent of the human race down the staircase, down into the darkness. He says that although humans knew God, they chose not to glorify Him or give thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, some of you may be wondering, why is it such a big deal to thank God, right? Why does he want to be honored? That sounds very egotistical. So think about it this way. Let's say that, imagine that an American woman traveled to a foreign country, and while she was there, she met a a local man from the country, and they got married. But shortly after the, the birth of their first child, she took the infant and she returned to the United States. Heartbroken, the man was unable to get a visa to pursue her. And so he began sending her letters every day, pleading with her to to come back to him and to bring their son back to him. But finally, she she wrote back and she said, please stop sending me letters because I'm not going to show them to your son and I'm not reading them. But if you want to send money, I I will pass that along to your son. So, he began faithfully sending her a a check each week. And true to her word, the mother put the check into her son's account. And when he came of age, he began receiving that money directly. Now, the son had no direct knowledge of the father, but the father hoped that the son would think carefully about the money that he was receiving and ponder who deserved to be thanked for sending it to him. The father imagined that as the son reflected on the money and on the fact that he never knew his biological father, he would come to the conclusion that his father might be the one who's sending it to him. And that would then lead him to seek for his father so that he could thank him and honor him if he was the one sending it. But instead, the son never gave the money a second thought. He just took it for granted or he assumed that that somebody was sending it to him because he deserved it or just because he's so awesome. Now, I think that in this scenario, what the the son is doing is wrong, even though he is not consciously aware of refusing to thank his father. Does that make sense? He's not consciously aware of refusing to thank his father, but he should have thought very carefully about his gifts, thought very carefully about his circumstances. Even if he was bitter about not knowing his father, even if he had formed all kinds of wrong beliefs about how his father had abandoned him, he should have at least considered the possibility that it was his dad sending him the money and sought him out. But he didn't, and neither do we. Paul puts it like this in Acts 14, 16. He says, In the past, God let all nations, all people groups, go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and he fills your hearts with joy. But instead of seeking the supreme source of our good gifts, humans choose to worship idols. And thus our reasoning becomes futile. That means it can never reach its goal. We can never be fully rational And our hearts are darkened. That means our wills, our emotions, our sense of right and wrong, all of that becomes confused and disordered. And so we love and we prioritize the wrong things. Now I want to pause here quickly in the midst of this, and I want to look quickly at two other passages. One is in 1 Corinthians 10, 19-20. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Paul says this, Do I mean, then, that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Then Ephesians 2, 1-3, Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, 
in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So what Paul is saying here is that when we see someone worshiping an idol, what they are really worshiping is a demon. The statue itself is just an object made of wood or stone or whatever, but there is a spirit behind it. And those demons are ultimately under the authority of the ruler of the spirit of the air, which is a Jewish title for Satan. And so when people worship an idol, they are now completely cut off from a relationship with God. See, Adam and Eve still had an indirect relationship with God. They could still worship Him, even though they didn't have that direct relationship anymore. But when somebody, when somebody now turns away from God and worships an idol, they're completely cut off from God because they're putting themselves under the power of an evil spirit. They're giving their allegiance to a demon who begins to work in them, stirring up their bodily desires to the point of sinful cravings and keeping them preoccupied with those desires and deceived with all kinds of confusing thoughts. And so they are blinded and unable to see the glory of Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. By worshiping demons, we are unwilling to see God and therefore we are unable to see His glory in Christ. And that's a, that's a terrible scenario. Okay, I think it's much worse than how Christians typically describe human depravity. Uh, in America, we have a very materialistic, very naturalistic mindset. And so we have trouble believing in spirits even though we say we believe in God. And we tend to view people as very rational and competent, and they they can choose to follow God if they want to. But Paul is saying that by rejecting God, we're no longer fully rational. Our desires are, are disordered, and we often don't want the right things, and they're so strong that we often can't resist them. And worst of all, by worshiping idols, we come under the power of evil spirits whose goal is to steal the glory and the thanksgiving that should go to God and to destroy us for eternity. Now you may be saying, wow, that's, that's really heavy, but it's a good thing I don't worship idols, right? I mean, I've seen stuff on this Discovery Channel about people worshiping idols, but I don't do that. But here's the problem. Everybody is idolatrous. Idols are not simply statues of things. They can be anything that we regard as supreme in our lives. Paul called materialism an idol. He said that sexual pleasure can be an idol. He even said that the law of Moses can be an idol. Think about that. The law of Moses, it's a good thing. But if your life revolves around it more than God, that becomes an idol. Whatever your life revolves around and you live for is an idol if it's not God. Whatever gives you your ultimate sense of security and power and purpose and significance and joy is an idol if it's not God. Worshiping the idol of materialism will put you in Satan's power just as much as offering a sacrifice to a demon. You may not have rejected God by bowing down to a statue of Baal, but you have rejected him by bowing down to human approval or money or sex or pride. That's the full picture of depravity. To be dead in your sins, cut off from the life and guidance of an intimate relationship with God because of Adam and Eve's fall. And being, then being unwilling to even seek God and thank Him. And then becoming enslaved to idols that you've chosen over God. 
And you have no hope of now resisting Satan in your own natural power. You don't even realize that you're a prisoner. Like the alcoholic who thinks he's in control, you're sure that you control your life. You think you control your gods when actually they control you. And only the true God has the power to save you. But here's the problem. He hates your wickedness and your rejection of the truth. And so he has given you over to Satan. That sounds harsh, but look with me. Romans 1.24 Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. The word gave over here in the Greek, it means to surrender to an enemy. So because they rejected God and they chose to worship these other spirits, God gave them over to their chosen masters. God's punishment is to give us over to the demonic masters that we choose to serve. See, before you, before you really believe in human depravity, the good news of the gospel doesn't really sound all that great. It sounds kind of foolish. I mean, if, if, if you think that humans are basically good, then why do we need Jesus to save us from God's wrath and his punishment? Why do we need God's spirit to change us? Why can't we just try harder to be good? I mean, we're all, we're all going the same direction, Muslims, Jews, we're all going the same place. But when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and helps you to see the truth of human depravity and to accept it, then the gospel begins to make sense. Then it becomes like a life raft to somebody who's drowning. It's not just good news, it's the best news. That the great God that our ancestors rejected and who we refuse to seek has sought us. That He sent His Son to rescue and to ransom us from Satan. That He gave His Son over to His enemies so that we could be rescued from our enemies. Jesus died for our wickedness, the wickedness that God hates, so that that wickedness could be covered, it could be atoned for, it could be completely removed, and we could be reunited with God and have His righteousness in us and receive the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to offer you today. Next week, we're going to start talking about redemption, but you don't have to wait until then to be rescued by God. If you feel hope rising in your heart as you hear about the gospel, then be assured that God is drawing you to himself. And if you feel the temptation to be cynical and to rationalize away those feelings, then be assured that you have a demonic enemy who desperately wants to keep you captive. There is a war going on for your soul. And you have to choose who you will serve. But know that today could be the day of your salvation. Now is your chance to be free. God is opening your eyes and he's warming your heart, but if you reject him now, he may just give you back over to those idols that you've chosen. And you might not get another chance. So don't take it lightly. Don't wait. If you're saying, well, then what what must I do? What must I do to be saved? The answer is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Very simple. Believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Turn away from the idols that you're worshiping and turn to him as your new master, your new Lord. And say, Jesus, you're my master now. And I believe that you are my savior, that you've done whatever it takes. You've died on the cross. And I don't quite understand all how that works, but somehow through your death on the cross, you have covered, you have paid, you have removed my sins if I am willing to receive it. 
And so I do receive it. I trust you, Jesus. Be my Lord. I trust that you're my Savior. That's all you have to do to be safe, to be free. And so I'm going to give you a chance now. I'm going to pray. And if you want to, you can pray with me in your heart. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, I believe that you are the Lord. You are the Master. You're God's Son. And so I turn to you. I turn away from the other things that I've served. Turn from going my own way. I turn to you. I bow my knees to you as my Lord, as my Master. And I trust that you have done what it takes to pay for my sins. That through your death, you've covered them, you've removed them. And so, Jesus, I trust you, I serve you. Come into my life and make me new. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you have done that, then I want to welcome you into God's family. There's nothing else you need to do. To be saved, you already are, but I invite you to tell somebody that you trust, to to tell a leader if you want to. I'll be in the back in the greeting line. Let me know if you want to. Uh, Get a Bible. We'd be happy to give you one, uh, and get involved so that we can encourage you and support you as a church, but congratulations if you said that prayer. Let's sing a song of response right now.